KUT's AT Explained is back with a brand new season. Our first episode, what's up with that tower in Clarksville? I've heard it called the Clarksville Eiffel Tower, the tower, the leaning tower of Clarksville, all those names. Subscribe to AT Explained wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our next AT Explained live show at the Paramount Theater on April 3rd. Brand new stories told live on stage. Get your tickets at austintheater.org. Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Hello and welcome to this song the podcast where artists talk about the songs that change their lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth McQueen, and this episode of this song is our extra special, extra long South by Southwest extravaganza featuring Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo and Sabrina Ellis and Andrew Cashin from the Austin bands A Giant Dog and Sweet Spirit. Like I said, this episode is extra long because there was a lot of good stuff in both interviews and we just didn't want to cut all of it out. And it's being released during South by Southwest week here in Austin, so we figure that an extra long episode was fitting because everything, even podcasts, should be over the top during South by Southwest. Okay, let's get started with Mark Mothersbaugh. You know him as the founder of Devo, but what you might not know is that he's been a prolific visual artist for his entire life. He has a retrospective show up at the Contemporary in Austin now called Myopia that, if you can, you really should go see. It's inspiring, to say the least. You get insight into the beginnings of Devo, plus you get to see all the other work that Mark Mothersbaugh has made, everything from a mutant car to a room filled with postcards to an incredible music-making machine made from bird calls and organ pipes. You really have to experience it. He was in town for the opening of Myopia, and he sat down with me in his hotel room to tell me about the night when he was a kid when he saw a band on TV that changed his life. So here he is, Mark Mothersbaugh. I'll tell you the first song that made a difference in my life. And what had happened is I was seven and I got my first pair of glasses. And before that, I didn't know I was blind. I, I could just see like like foggy colors mm-hmm. and I heard sounds. So if somebody came to the door, I'd run to the door and I'd go, Grandma! But I'd have to be six inches away. So Grandma would be like, okay, <laughs> what are they feeding him? Sugar, I know. So I got my first pair of glasses and I saw things. And um, I had gone through two years of public school where I was driving them crazy, and I totally did not understand what I was doing or why I was there. And I was always baffled by how kids knew the right answers like to anything. Like they'd, She'd say, like, all right, add the numbers up on the board, Mark. And I'd go, what's a board? And they'd all laugh. Kids would laugh, and she'd go, all right, get in the corner. And I'd be like... Was that because you couldn't see it? Because I couldn't see it. I yeah. didn't know what what she was talking about, you know? I was like, how do people know the right answers? You know, how do they know what to say? Anyhow, so I got a pair of glasses and I saw things. But it did make, you know, developmental years kind of atypical and made it so I was, I ended up being the kid with the kick me sign on his back for the rest of my public school days, all through 12th grade. But 
music, I hated music when I was a little kid because it meant I had to take keyboard lessons. Were you forced by your parents? Yeah, they wanted me to play music at the church and they had their favorite songs like Autumn Leaves. Things like that they wanted me to learn, and I'm like... <laughs> no seven-year-old is interested in? No. no. And, and Mrs. Fox, my organ teacher, who for $2 a week would come over, I'd be playing the... And she'd sing along, so she'd go... She was uh, tone deaf, she'd go... The autumn leaves float by, oh, are my window... And I would play as loud and as slow as I could, because I knew my family was in the next room, trying to watch TV, and I'd be going, don't you want me to stop taking <laughs> lessons? But they wouldn't let me quit. They wouldn't let me quit. And uh, two points for them, because I started at seven, and then by the time I was 12, I hated it. Yeah. It was 1958. We had five kids, and so to keep the chaos down, my dad would like gather everybody around at dinner time, and, and like we're all fighting, like we're all little kids fighting and stuff like normal. And uh, my dad would set a little black and white eight inch or nine inch screen TV on the kitchen table and we'd watch Ed Sullivan's show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, live from New York, the Ed Sullivan Show. So there's something for everybody on Ed Sullivan. You know, there was like Chinese plate spinners. And there'd be comedians. What? Who are you? <laughs> you know, this orchestra can be replaced by musicians. Alvin and the Chipmunks were on. There'd be like, Guy Lombardo would come on and sing a song and we'd all be kind of just waiting for that to be over. You work and work for years and years. You're always on the go. Never then there'd be a polka number or something. But one night we're sitting there, and, and I'm 12, and he goes, and straight from Liverpool, the Beatles! And so the Beatles came on. Right now, and again on the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! That's there was pandemonium in the audience on TV, and all of a sudden, Close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow. I'm like really interested and they're playing music. Doesn't sound anything like any of the stuff I've been learning from Mrs. Fox. I'm going, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's why my whole life has been spent being tortured, having to learn how to play music so I can do that. So, you know, the next day I ran out and went to Woolworths and bought sheet music. Well, first I tried to buy a Beatles album, and I went to Woolworths. The Beatles already had a couple albums out by the time they ended up on Ed Sullivan. They were out in Europe, but, and they weren't that big here yet. But they had two or three albums, but they, had, they were all like $3.99, and I'm like, $3.99? I get 50 cents a week for an allowance. I can't. And so then I found there was one that was $1.99, and I went, I'm getting that one. So I took it home, 
and I'm all excited, and I'm listening to the music, and I'm going, okay, I don't recognize that song, and that's not the one they played, and then that's not the one they played, and then, then it gets to, like, near the end, and there's a song going, it sounds like a Beatles song, kind of, but then they go, then they go into the chorus, and it goes, you got me bug, 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 bugged, hey, little ladybug, I'm in love with, and I'm like, let me look at the cover again. Yes. And it's like, and it's like, the London sound with the bugs. You got me bug, 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 bug. Cause now, little ladybug, you belong to me. And I'm like, I bought the wrong album. And I like, I couldn't believe it. I I was so pissed at this group called the Bugs. <laughs> Whoever they were, they were terrible. They were like not the Beatles. I don't know what they were, but they were not the Beatles. I was so angry. And so I bought sheet music for Hard Day's Night. And I had a friend named Ronnie Wyzinski, and I called him up. And I said, come on over, let's learn, let's learn these Beatles songs. And so I, we had like a little small Hammond spinet organ in, the, in our dining room, and he had a, a, a accordion. So, <laughs> so we're sitting there reading the chords and going, um, it's been a hot da 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 day 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 nine 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 and I've been working and like after about two weeks all of a sudden I went oh my god I spent my whole life learning the wrong instrument and I was totally depressed and I was so bummed out it was like I like I can't believe it why did I learn the wrong and then the Beatles came back on they go back by popular demand the next week. and they're standing there and they're playing I think she loves you and it's like and they're going yeah 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 and I'm like they just said yeah 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 and then they went Woo! and all the girls screamed and it's like they're like primal they're like <laughs> but they weren't they, they, were like, they were like cute little like like dolls but you know to like a 12 year old you know I, I thought they were like a combination of like cavemen meets astronauts or something you know it was like they were like incredible So then Topo GGO comes out and, and a one, and a two, and a three, and a four. They used to do the thing where the musical guest would do a song at the front of the show and then one more at the end of the show because that's how Ed kept all the teens staying with the station. And so, yeah. so they come back out, but I'm looking and, and I've seen them twice now and something's different. <laughs> and there's something different and John he's sitting at like a card table and I'm like he's sitting at a card table and the other guys are standing up like they normally do and it's a song called um, I'm Down they played the song I'm Down and there's like these really hard hits you know and then he's singing a, a line like with a really strained voice they had these great voices that somehow they were totally melodic and they sounded strained at the same time, distorted. And that was so freaking hot. That, I'd never heard that before, ever. But then I'm watching him sitting there and I'm like, he's holding his hands like this and he starts, he's playing and then they come in for a close-up when he does a solo and I'm like, oh my God, 
John's playing a keyboard, an organ, and then not only is he playing an organ and a solo, he starts playing a solo, and then he starts playing with his elbow in the middle of the solo, and I'm like, that is awesome. Mrs. Fox never told me you could use your elbow. Look at that, that's so incredible. I was like losing my mind. He was just like making this, this noise instead of playing like a nice pretty melody. He was like making noise and it was so aggressive and awesome. And I just remember as soon as it was over, I ran to the phone and I called Ronnie Wyszynski up and I go, the Beatles used an organ, they didn't <laughs> use an accordion. So then I became really dead set on being in a band. And since I already drew every day anyhow and uh, had not much of a social life, because <laughs> I was the, the kick me sign guy. So I ended up having this fantasy that I was the fifth Beatle. And I would go into the basement at my parents' house, and I would turn the music up really loud for their, the Beatle records that I had now accumulated two albums worth of stuff. And I made up in my mind, there was a part of the basement that was the stage, and I would stand over on the side, and I had this whole fantasy world where the Beatles would be out there playing like at Shea Stadium or something, you know? And then one of them would look over, like, like maybe it'd be Ringo, and he'd look over and he'd look at his watch, and he'd look over at me and go, and he'd point at me, and then I'd run up and I'd grab his drumsticks and I'd, I'd fill in so he could go over and have some coffee or a, or a soft drink or something. <laughs> and he'd just kind of like take a break for a couple minutes and then I'd finish the song and then he'd come back out and I'd go off and then Paul or John would signal to me to come over and fill in for him. And I remember I had this, these fantasies that they sound, they sound so creepy now when I think about them, but I, I'd imagine that, that Paul would be playing like this or John would be playing like this, and then they'd like lift up, and I'd kind of like, because I was a little kid, yeah, you know, in my dream even, I was a little kid still, and I would kind of fit in, and then I'd take over playing, and they'd, we wouldn't miss a single note, and then they'd go and have a cigarette, you know, or, or chat to some girls or something, and and then when they were ready, they'd put out their cigarette and then come back, and then we'd trade back, and, and it was like, um, <laughs> I was helping them out, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I became a Beatle for a while. Yeah, when I was 13, I was one of the Beatles. So you have this really powerful experience when you're like 12, and you go in, and you kind of realize this kind of power to move you, like in this really yeah. primal way, you know? It, it, and it wasn't even, it was, to me, it was like very innocent. My interest in art and, and music was just, I wanted to express myself. Yeah. I, I didn't know how to express myself. And, and I felt awkward because I had these glasses that were like Coke bottle bottoms. And I was the littlest kid with a big alien head. You know, some girl in second grade said, why is your head shaped like a light bulb? And I was like... I went home and looked in the mirror and I go, it is shaped like a light bulb. <laughs> a light bulb with thick glasses. <laughs> you kind of went to school for art. Yeah. But then you decided, you and your friends, I mean, and I read this on, on the internet, but yeah. after the Kent State shootings, you and your friends yeah. were like, you know what, we want to do something or say something. And instead yeah. of all just turning to visual art, you also kind of brought music into it. Well, that was the artists at the time that we were inspired by, like people like Andy Warhol. Whatever anybody else thinks about him, to me what was inspiring about him was that 
he was a painter, he was a photographer, he was a printmaker, he was a filmmaker, he was, he produced the Velvet Undergrounds, who were the best band in the world at that time. Did he produce them? Well, that's what we thought. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather, whiplash girl child in the dark. And he did their album cover, yeah. and he hung out with them, and he made these awesome films that you had to go to an art theater to see because yeah. they were just a little too too cool for regular movie theaters. Of course, they were better than regular movies. And he threw the best parties in Manhattan, we heard. He you know, inspired fashion people and everybody wanted to hang out with him. And I thought, that's great. He's about coming to the solution of ideas through different artistic expressions. And so for us, it was easy to imagine Devo is like, an art movement is Art Devo, and we were going to talk about, because we had been at Kent State for the shootings, and they yeah. killed kids, and they shot like 30-some kids, you know, and that was kind of a crazy thing to do. I mean, to like just turn around and just shoot kids that had signs and long hair, you know, yeah. that was pretty, that was a pretty big mistake. Pretty insane. And, uh, but, you know, it's like our school closed down, so it gave us time to think about what we had seen and we decided it was de-evolution, not evolution. And we wanted to talk about it. And so it gave us a purpose and a, and a focus for our art. And we, we were doing music at the same time because everybody could afford guitars and amps, you know. It's like 35 millimeter cameras were impossible. Right. That was more than all the equipment for a, for a band would cost to get a camera. And then film, I mean, to make our first film, it took us a year. You know, because we spent six months, we started a, a design company just to make money and save it. And once we got $3,000, we closed the company down. Once we had 3000 in the bank that we could apply, and then we bought 16 millimeter film. And it still took another six or eight months to finish the movie. And, and so music uh, was actually kind of a way to expedite getting the, the, the message out in a way. It's like, well, we can... We could make some songs well, and play them. Yeah, there was nowhere to them. show like, the movie. You know? yeah. So so we would play like at a club and we'd hang a sheet in front of us. And we started doing that in Ohio. And then we, a couple years later, we went to New York and did it at Max's Kansas City and CBGB's. And people were really interested in seeing us because they go, okay, you got to go see this band. Not only do they wear yellow hazmat cleanup outfits, they start off the show, they show movies with songs that they wrote, and then they come out and play the same songs again. They go, it's really kind of a strange thing. And so, you know, and at the time it was stuff like Elvis Costello was like doing retro, kind of like he was doing like old rock and roll kind of stuff. But we'll be told about the side of the parking. Talking heads were trying to figure out who they were. Psycho killer. They were trading members, you know, and, and you know, in the New York social music set. All these people, everybody knew them, and they watched them all change bands and try to figure out what they were doing. And Devo just kind of showed up out of nowhere.
And below me, you can hear gut feeling from Devo. And ah, we ran out of space when we were recording Mark Mothersbaugh. Seriously, I could have talked to him for hours if we had more room on the SD card. But wasn't what we talked about great? I mean, what a description of what it's like to be a kid falling in love with a band. The part where he talks about becoming a member of the band in his mind, like, I don't know about you, but I've done that. I've had that kind of fantasy. Not about the Beatles, but I have certainly inserted myself into the story of the bands that I love. Like, in my mind, I was the only female member of the band. Mark Mothersbaugh will be interviewed at South by Southwest this Thursday, March 17th at 1230. If you can't go see that, then please go see Myopia. Do yourself a favor. It's totally worth it. Before we go on, I want to take a minute and ask that if you like hearing artists like Mark talk about music that changed their lives, then please take a minute to become a subscriber on iTunes. That way you can get future episodes like next week's with Eugene Merman and the guys from Ringo Death Star delivered right to you. And while you're there, we'd love it if you would leave a rating or a review. It helps us with iTunes ratings, and it makes everyone on Team This Song feel really, really good. And now, Andrew Cashin and Sabrina Ellis. They're the main songwriters for two bands, A Giant Dog and Sweet Spirit. Sweet Spirit is this huge band with a killer sound and a new record out called Kokomo, and that is one of my favorite records, by the way. A Giant Dog, they've got a bit more of the punk happening, and they have a record called Pile, which will come out later this year. And they came into KUTX to talk about music that changed them, like lots and lots of music. So here they are, Andrew Cashin and Sabrina Ellis. There's lots of songs, but like the one that I guess stuck with me is uh, Search and Destroy by Iggy Pop. I'm a sleepwalking cheater with a hat full of napalm. I'm a runaway son of the nuclear aid bound. I am a world's forgotten boy, the one who searches and destroys. Do you remember how old you were when you heard it for the first time? It's probably like 16. So when you heard Search and Destroy and you were 16, was that like your first experience of Iggy Pop or were you kind of... Yeah, I just, we used to play with this band all the time that was like really cool in my eyes. They're only like two years older than us. It doesn't take many years to make someone way cooler yeah. than you when you're a teenager. Yeah, we just like looked up to them a lot. Yeah. Even though they were degenerates, we just, like, we thought they were cool. Doesn't that make them even cooler if yeah. they're degenerates? Yeah, it's especially like, when yes. you're, like, 15. Yeah. They were the ones that, like, kind of turned us on to just, like, Richard Hell. I was saying let me out of here before I was even born. It's such a gamble when you get a face. It's fascinating to observe what the mirror does, but when I dine it for the wall and I set a place. 15 years old they were like here's the cool sh-. like they did the big of, brother thing yeah where yeah. they're like let me introduce you to yeah. what you need to know yeah. yeah and 
I mean, that was just one of the songs that like really stuck out to like open me up, open whatever, go down the rabbit hole or whatever to find cooler music and kind of step out of a comfort zone and like just explore music in a deeper yeah. way. Do you remember what it was about like that song? You know, because it sounds like you had a lot of music coming at you and all of a sudden you hear this one song that's like, what? Like, Yeah, it's just that opening riff. It's just that like there's no count. It's just opens up with this like killer crunchy guitar riff I don't know it's something about that riff I still play it to this day for every sound check it just like I don't know what it is but it's just an awesome riff so it's the riff more than anything yeah else. if you actually break it down it's just a fun riff to play it like it's very bouncy but it like I don't know it's hard to explain over a microphone without, like, showing you. It's just like... Right. Well, you, you actually are showing me the chord the, formations with your hands. Yeah. Like, it's a, yeah. it's a... It's just, like, the physical act of, like, actually playing the riff is, like, it's kind of fun. So when you're writing for Sweet Spirit or you're writing for a giant dog, are is there a part of you that's always trying to like not rewrite that riff, but like capture whatever magic about that riff? Oh yeah, hit you? Yeah, like that style of guitar playing, just like bouncing from one chord to another, like right under each other, like A and D, but just going really quickly back and forth, capturing that like rawness and angriness in a riff. So do you think riffs have like emotional content? Yeah, totally. I guess I I guess I never really thought of it that way. But like so that riff is like there's a there's an anger underneath it all? Yeah. I mean, you can even play the same riff differently I and mean, it just like comes across completely differently. Pretty much all those songs on Raw Power are just downstrokes, just quick, like, you're just beating the guitar to death. Like, that's, I don't know, I just, it stuck with me, that, like, strikes a chord with me, not to be horribly punny. You can't help it, though, <laughs> I mean, come on. primarily write in riffs like do you think when you think of a song is that like the first place that you go yeah what about you sabrina do you because you guys write together right so we we write together in a way that really works well for us because it's very rare that i write a riff um when i think about songs i think about i can think about melodies um although andrew writes really good melodies, usually with his riffs. Um, oh. And then I end up putting in parts and writing the lyrics. And it works really well for us because he's really quick and productive and does come up with really unique combinations and patterns for his uh, songs and music. What were you going to say? I think just when you write, you write very sonically. Like, 
here's this the song. Here's right. It's usually here's the a lyrics, little package the, deal, yeah. and it's just like here's everything that comes with the song. And then it needs a riff written in. Yeah. By Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some like seasoning. Yeah. On top. Me, I'm just like here's the riff, here's the melody. I have a different part that can maybe fit with it. Sometimes kind of he got... throws down a line. Sometimes he's just like. <laughs> he's like, I'm losing my mind. I'm like, all right, okay, that's the whole song. Yeah. And I'm just going to write around that. <laughs> it's usually a good springboard for me. When did you guys find out that you could write songs like that? Was it maybe 10 years ago? When he came to Austin when we were in our early 20s and we started kind of falling in and accidentally writing together, um, he had been listening to a lot of cool rock and roll and I had listened to mostly dad rock and dad rock being like classic the, rock the eagles no well I guess you're right yeah I guess I'm thinking of like the who we don't get pulled again Pink Floyd Jimi Hendrix obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. I had, a, I had a mixed CD that I'd made myself of classics, classic rock songs that I liked to listen to driving to and from school in my Camaro. It was a 70s Camaro. T-tops and it made me more friends than I had. And, um, and I was friends with Andrew and then I guess in our early 20s I'd been off to New York and done experimental theater. And then I, so I was pretty free and uninhibited and improvisational when I met him and then, not met him, but re-met. We started writing songs, but we didn't mean to start a band. He wanted to do graphic design, but we were going to all these shows all the time, um, downtown and seeing garage punk bands. And, and then we decided to kind of start a band, but he had to kind of give me this full house, like Bob Saget, like moment, like put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, you need to be more rock and roll. Like, <laughs> you can't sing so nice all the time, and you got to dance. And I, I hated dancing. I was so... You're so good at it. Thank you, but <laughs> it's just from habit now. Mm -hmm. But I never danced at practice, and then our first show, I did. Because, you know, the Stooges. Yeah. Iggy Pop, being exposed to that stuff. Just give you a jar of peanut butter and... Razor blade. Yeah. Let you go. <laughs> now I wanna be your dog. Now I wanna be your dog. Now I wanna be your dog. Andrew gave me an Iggy Pop and the Stooges CD when um, I must have been 21. Mm -hmm. Maybe 20 or 21. When he started visiting Austin a lot and we were writing songs together, before we started Giant Dog, he gave me the Iggy Pop and the Stooges album. That's all I list. That's all I could listen to for a couple weeks because it blew my mind. That and the Monks. Those were just the beginnings of me even having any ideas of being being able to turn the the idea of 
just the horrible rebelliousness um, and being um, un, like needlessly rebellious, just unable to function in structures like school and um, with authority and stuff. It turned those feelings into music for me, and it blew my mind. Like it went, it went from me having been to a lot of um, kind of teen punk rock shows in Houston to me starting to understand why this developed um, in the 70s as, as a way of being. Right. It was really important. Did, it, you, did you not understand it when you, like, went to those teen punk rock shows? Were you, like... All like, I wanted to do at those shows was slam my body around on other people's bodies and maybe get some alcohol out behind the Christian venue and... Wait a maybe second. See some, <laughs> maybe see some people take their shirts off. It was physical for you. You went to those punk rock shows and it was like physical, maybe a, maybe a little grown up a cool thing happening. And then you mm-hmm. hear Iggy Pop and it's like, oh, that's what it is. That's like... He put words to the feelings and he... He was very physical too, and yeah. still is, um, and just the the way of his being, you know, he's he's kind of this strikingly ugly guy, and in a way that's oh, so alluring to me. I was I was very turned on by the music, and um, he's got a very sophisticated way about explaining something really trashy. Yeah, and ugly, and yeah, it made me understand that. It didn't matter what was really expected of me, um, that there could be a, a place and an outlet for uh, the real um, the real person that really felt rejected from society. and then the theatrics live. Yeah, when we first started writing, and I thought it was really cool, but she was super into David Bowie. Oh, yeah. What what era David Bowie? All of it? Uh, Mostly 70s Bowie. I kind of, you know, at that time in my early 20s, I understand now his stuff from the 80s, but I really didn't understand it, and it kind of offended me um, because I didn't get how tongue-in-cheek it was. But his stuff from the 70s, I really... I was thinking about it on my way here. I was like, of course Bowie would be my this song. Um, because his writing in the 70s really appealed to adolescence. Yeah. It was all like, I'm this reject and I'm kind of trapped in a society that doesn't get me. But it was poetic, so it seemed like this reject was cooler than the society. I was thinking about that on my way here. I was like, I did used to love Bowie so much. Yeah. Life on Mars, I would oh lay God. in my bed with the lights turned off. Show. 
like a lot of like the thread that runs through stuff that you really like or that you really connected with was like you are not alone. Mm-hmm. You are you are not the only one who feels out of place and out of step with like everyone else who seems to have seems to understand what to do. What to do? Like right. And it, so is that something you guys try to then like is that something you try to give to people who listen to your music? Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when we first started writing songs, I saw that like she wanted to like express herself that in that kind of punk rock attitude, but she was just listening to different stuff and the whole like Bob Saget moment was just like all right, I know you understand it. <laughs> like, yeah. But now it's time to let it out. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And did you find, did you find you had any, like, was there a process of accessing that? Yeah, there was. I would see people around town and take, I would take some example. Like, for me, my, my current Iggy Pop that I would go watch down at Beerland. His name is Brian Rowland, and he had this band called Elvis. Molly's little soldiers hiding in the corner. Marching time is over. Reality is over. Mommy, mommy's little soldiers looking over the shoulder. Tomorrow won't be better. Minutes feel like hours, mommy. He and I are great friends now, but, you know, at that time, I was this mousy, like, 21-year-old, and he was this really loud, shirtless, tattooed, aggressive um, guy, and I would just kind of stand right in front of him and watch him kind of annoy him (laughs) while he was playing. Uh, He was a huge um, influence on me. We would see the OCs when they'd come to town. We saw Ty Siegel play as a one-man band. We'd make sure to be around when they were coming to town. Um, Leslie, the um, the entertainer, the the personality, Leslie, the, the famous Austin, the yeah, famous Austin, Leslie. yeah. Um, Gentle lady? Yes. She was an influence on me. Seeing her around town, um, expressing herself, just living and breathing as like this work of art. I am this person. Um, and we'd have run-ins downtown yeah. with Leslie. All the time. Um, like when she was sitting next to the big sign that was like kind of... She wasn't doing big. any protests or anything. We were just hanging out downtown doing a photo shoot, you know, and she came out of nowhere with roses yeah. and started just started hanging out with us like picked me up and um you know I worked down on South Congress and I I'd, I'd be having breakfast at the old Bolden and Leslie would walk up and just reach on my plate and start like eating beans <laughs> off my plate with her hands and talking to me like um if my mama could see me now she'd be so shocked she would just fall over she would just have a heart attack and die you know just this living, walking piece of art. I'm not like everybody else. I'm not like everybody else. And I don't want to run around like Do you feel like you covered Bowie else. enough? 
we were talking. Well, I feel Bowie like we didn't end up actually being my choice. Because oh, okay. What was your choice? If I was gonna be just truly honest in a way that I'd even be embarrassed to be in front of Andrew, and I were to talk about the one song that got me into songwriting, understanding the translation of inner thoughts and emotions into phrases that cause empathy for other people. Um, That's a good way to describe songwriting, by the way. <laughs> the song I heard um, that really moved me was by Regina Spector when I was 18. Um, I had a crush on this older guy, and he wanted to go see Keen, which was a British oh, band. God. Exactly, that's what I thought. I thought, oh, God. Keen in um, in this big venue, but their opening act was Regina Spector. She was on tour with them. And was it she, just her and a piano? It was her and a keyboard, and she came out with her huge poofy hair, wearing like a blue polo shirt, and she's just this kind of nice lady. And she just sits down. And this was ten years ago, you know. So she was like in her mid twenties or early twenties, and she just starts singing. She has this striking voice that's hard to listen to, but gorgeous. And she's singing really emotional songs. And they're making me uncomfortable, but what was really more uncomfortable was the audience's reaction, because it was a lot of bros. And they start throwing cups of, you know, cups of beer and stuff at her. And they're just like being rude and booing her off the stage. No. So seeing that happen to somebody, um, it... I think that made me really connect with the music even harder. And I walked forward and I just stood up there and I felt like I was the only person in that room. Some days aren't yours at all. They come and go as if they're someone else's days. They come and leave it behind someone else's face. And it's harsher than yours and colder than yours. Awesome. She's she's so poetic. She writes her thoughts. They just spill out of her head while she's writing her songs. I'm pretty sure. Like for it her, sounds I think, like a stream of consciousness. Yeah, kind of it thing. does. And I walked to the merch table and I bought everything she had, um, which was a bunch of EPs and one album. And I listened to it all summer. songs I knew them all by heart but the song um, some days it's beautiful it reminds me of John Lennon mm -hmm. and I, I I think he's probably a huge influence on her um, but she has she has the classical training she has the poetry she has a punk rock attitude but yeah her music um, is something I would never talk about with the guys that I'm in a band with I'd get eaten alive I'm embarrassed right now <laughs> 
Take Me to a Party from Sweet Spirits Kokomo. How fun were these guys? And no, we did not know that Iggy Pop would be performing new material at this year's South by Southwest when we recorded this episode. It all just kind of came together in a South by Southwest magic kind of way. Both Sweet Spirit and A Giant Dog will be at the KUTX live at the Four Seasons early morning shows. A Giant Dog plays Wednesday at 8 a.m. and Sweet Spirit plays Saturday at 11 a.m. And they are both really good live, like really good. You should totally go. And that's it. We have come to the end of another episode of this song. This song is a production of KUTX 98.9. This episode was produced by Jack Anderson, David Sanger, and myself, Elizabeth McQueen. The Mark Mothersbaugh interview was recorded and edited by Jack Anderson, and he did a fabulous job. And the interview with Andrew and Sabrina was recorded by me and edited by Dave and I. Antoinette Masando is our social media guru and will be manning the KUTX pop-up studio at the Four Seasons Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Stop by, say hi, tell her why you love KUTX. Thanks to Caitlin Greenwood and Andrea Filer for their help setting up the Mark Mothersbot interview. Thanks to Peter Babb and Deidre Gott for all their help on the podcast. And yes, our theme song is Mahoot by Austin's own excellent hardproof Afrobeat. You can email us at this song at KUTX.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Our handle is at this song KUTX. You can follow us on Facebook and you can subscribe to this song along with the other KUTX podcasts, liner notes, song of the day, and Austin Music Minute on iTunes. And like I said, we'd love a rating or a review. Right on. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 